4: Wednesday Wednesday morning, morning, the the 5th of December. December. Good morning morning. with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. The British government is fighting a losing battle in Parliament over the Brexit withdrawal deal on offer with Europe. Theresa May's position as Prime Minister is on life support and appears to be dying in slow motion. Next week, a vote on the Brexit divorce deal is almost certain to be defeated, but what that means, or what it might mean, Mean, changed overnight with the government losing three significant votes in the Commons. Firstly, the government said it would not publish the full legal advice it received on the deal. That advice will in fact be published today on foot of a vote which saw a majority of MPs side against the government. Secondly, the government has been voted in contempt of Parliament for saying it wouldn't publish the legal advice, the first time in history that a British government has been found to be in contempt Thirdly, and most significantly, MPs will now have a say in what happens next if and when the deal is rejected next week. Dominic Grieve, who tabled this motion, said this could mean renegotiating the deal with the EU or giving the public the final say on it. Mairead McGuinness, Fine Gael MEP for the Midlands North West and Vice President of the European Parliament joins us now. And Mairead McGuinness, it seems as though a second referendum is a real possibility?
5: Look, I mean, you've given a good summary there of events unfolding by the moment in the House of Commons. I'm not so sure that I would rush to suggest that a second referendum is a distinct possibility. It's certainly not off the table, uh, but I think there are concerns in the United Kingdom and I think justifies that society is so divided uh, that, if you like, a rushed second referendum might not be the most appropriate way to deal with what is a very complex issue, no more than the first referendum wasn't the way to do it. But you are right in saying that next week the expectation is that this vote uh, on the withdrawal agreement um, will not get the support of the House of Commons. I think what's interesting is the speculation today is that the loss, in other words, the numbers who will vote against the withdrawal agreement and political declaration um, is expected to be less than anticipated. So there are uh, there are people who will move from voting against to mo- moving towards the government position because they're fearful of the consequences of not getting the deal through. Um, and I think that. That's interesting because the scale of the loss is what we will be all looking at. I don't think Mm. any of us anticipate that uh, Theresa May is going to win this vote. What we will be looking at is the scale of numbers that vote against her. And I think in terms of her own position, I have to say personally, I think she's been incredibly strong politically. Uh, She's really uh, up against it, and yet she seems to come out fighting, will she be able to continue to fight if there is such a massive um, level of rejection of a deal that she has negotiated? I think there's a question mark over that. But the biggest question mark is, um, what will happen when or if uh, next Tuesday um, the the vote goes down? Um, There isn't a clear path. I think that the Dominic Grieve uh, uh, amendment Amendment, Mm. which passed, Mm. I think that that it gives an opportunity for the House of Commons to have more of a say in what happens.
4: Well, I think the expectation there, if the, de- if the deal is rejected by the House of Commons, which, as you say, is the expectation, I think the next expectation is that MPs will vote uh, in favour of uh, uh, Britain leaving, uh, not leaving without uh, a deal.
5: Well, there's also a possibility, although I'm not sure how this can happen, that they would be asked to vote again, mm. which uh, seems unusual, but th- that has been speculated by colleagues here in um, British MEPs. But that there
4: will whether be that would make vote. any difference or not, but what they would do is prevent uh, Britain leaving Europe without a deal.
5: I think there is a huge concern uh, amongst, I suppose, the responsible wing, if you like, uh, of the House of Commons, that without a deal, It would be a disaster. So I think that the yesterday's developments are significant um, to try and avoid that awful scenario. I think there's other difficulties, very practical ones. This is December and we expected this to be done and dusted by Mm. Christmas at the latest. We in the European Parliament, and I've just come out of a meeting to to take this call, are discussing what we will do. So we've got to go through a process here in January. And as you know, the date is fixed for March the 29th. Uh, I mean, another interesting development yesterday was the Court of Justice, which said that the United Kingdom could unilaterally, unilaterally rather, withdraw the Article 50 notification. So essentially, they could say... Called the
4: the whole thing off
5: called oh, the whole thing off. Mm. Now I mean that's kind of more interesting to speculate about than to predict it as being a certainty uh, but it certainly was an interesting part of the, of the mix yesterday. Frankly nobody knows and even with the crystal ball you couldn't mm. guess the next steps in British politics. Like a lot of people I sat up I watched the debate in the House of Commons uh, I've never watched as much debate in the House of Commons, but I wanted to hear and listen to the debate. Some of it was depressing. I Mm. think Boris Johnson's speech was was just um, a sad reflection of a man who knows nothing about the Irish border and cares less.
4: But interesting Um, that he was challenged by members of the Conservative Party.
5: Which was absolutely encouraging, um, and at least it lifted me a little. But there were other speeches Mm. that were much more considered. I think what's difficult is that... You have the coalition of people who want to leave, the hard Brexiteers and those who are committed to the European Union voting in the same way next week. Um, And therefore, it's very hard to see how that coalition will vote differently next time round. One wants a crash out Brexit, one group, the other wants, um, if not to remain, then to have the closest possible links with the European Union and I wouldn't dismiss the possibility that there could be an extension of Article 50 either unilaterally or by agreement with The Council, uh, European Council, but that poses huge problems as well because uh, the European elections are coming up in May. How long would you need, and would the results be any different if there was more time for negotiation? I mean, this negotiation took a long time to complete, and I think the British Prime Minister was right yesterday in warning that there is no better deal, there is no other deal on the Mm. table, and that would be the view here in Europe as well that the withdrawal agreement is fixed and settled. Uh, The political declaration doesn't have the same, if you like, legal status, uh, but really there too, it's only speculating about a future relationship, it's not actually stating what it will be.
4: I heard a commentator say this morning uh, that it's moved from three options, leave with this deal, leave with no deal or stay in Europe being the three options that were in place and that that's now changed to to two options which are leave with the deal or stay. In other words, that no deal is not a prospect anymore.
5: Well look, I hope it's not a prospect. I mean, given the way this whole thing has has developed since the referendum um, and in the last months uh, you, you can't predict anything. I mean, the man who led all of this Nigel Farage has just now drifted off into the I don't know where, he's, he's quit UKIP, uh, which was, if you like, mm. the, the furnace that fired all of this. So those who promoted Brexit as being the great glory days for Great Britain are now off somewhere else. They have absolutely no, uh, taken no responsibility, uh, are, are not accountable for what they have left um, behind them. And I think what's very tragic is that you have a society in, in, in Britain that is deeply divided still, and you have a House of Commons, and I, I know mm. some of them in there, and in fact they were texting me during the debate yesterday, that is also very frightened of itself because they don't feel that they have control. They're not sure of the consequences of of what they're doing and there's a lot of anxiety and you can see it in the faces of those that I would regard as responsible uh, and who are trying to do the right thing um, and hoping that that is the outcome. So I mean I think we'll all be glued um, Mm. to radios and televisions and social media for the next couple of days and I would not predict what's going to happen next. All I know is that Mm. Europe has been open, transparent, we have a deal, we want this to move on because there's so many other things that we should be talking about and should be doing.
4: Well, there's another four eight-hour sessions of debates Mm. planned, and uh, a day is a long time in politics. Uh, The last 24 hours in politics have certainly been uh, a long time, and what's different this morning than would have been the case 24 hours ago is that it is now possible to imagine a referendum, and the question is to leave with a deal, the deal that's on offer, or stay? Yeah, but the
5: problem, uh, again, is timing. I mean, you cannot call a referendum. Uh, in the UK, I think you have to several months. So let's say this dress into January. Yes, so, and an extension
4: so is given on... An
5: extension hmm. is given. And all of the complications that that entails. And I have to say, I mean, I, we, I think the UK or Great Britain or whatever one's title needs to be very certain that there would be a different outcome. Or, you know, do you know
4: what I mean? The- mm. I'm sorry, I'm losing you a little bit there. I'm not sure if you can improve. Uh, apologies, uh, yes, yeah. apologies
5: mm-hmm, Michael. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's just uh, I'm outside the meeting here. Okay, I mean, yeah. as you say, um, in, in these times, it is very difficult to be clear about what will, ha- what will happen. If the no deal is definitely off the table, then there may be a logic in going back to the people and saying, look, this is the deal and this is where we are today. Mm. Which is your choice? But it would need to be a referendum where there was clear, um, unbiased information provided, almost like we have with our referendum commission, because otherwise it becomes, um, you know, a debate of the people who don't listen to each other and are not actually giving people the information they need to make an informed choice. So there's a lot of work to be done before I think the United Kingdom would, uh, would call another referendum. Of course, personally, I would love to see the UK staying in the European Union, but I'd love if they make up their minds because, you know, we, this is going on and on and I'm sure you're the same and your listeners are the same. You just wonder, will this ever conclude? Mm. And I think that is an open question.
4: Uh, and uh, what about uh, Mrs May's premiership? Is that about to conclude?
5: Well, it's interesting. I mean, to a man and woman that I've met, even at home when I'm talking to people and here, they've actually grown in their admiration for the Prime Minister because she's been very stoic persistent, clear, mm. um, determined. So I think for her personally... But she, she, she's, she's just lost three
4: drafts. significant she votes. She she's, she's about to lose the most significant of all.
5: But remember, I mean, who else have they? Um, the Conservative Party is deeply divided. Jeremy Corbyn wants an election. So I think there's a lot of other factors which might suggest that they would keep the Prime Minister in place until things settle a little. I I mean, I think she's Mm. not on the, you know, it's more immediate than medium to long term that there will be change. But I I, I think that there will be, you know, consideration given to timing and consequences because I suppose what's depressing from the Labour side is the focus is only on getting an election
4: in the United Kingdom. Jeremy Corbyn, uh, as I understand it, is softening his stance on a a second referendum now.
5: Well, if if he is, I'm not entirely clear. I I know that Keir Starmer, who is the, the... the, the Labour spokesman on all of this would be quite clear on this issue. And think Labour colleagues here in, in the Parliament are telling me, look, we're very clear. We believe we need another, another referendum to give people a choice, not to, to leave or, or stay, but t- to decide whether this deal is better than where they are today. Um, so, you know, maybe numbers will come around. But you see, I think that's further down the line, there's a lot of, hurdles to jump before you'd get to that place. I mean, I can't see anyone coming in on Wednesday of next week after this vote goes down saying, we'll have another referendum. Maybe I'm wrong, Mm. but I can't see that, because I think that there's too much, uh, I think there's too much anger still in the United Kingdom, there's too much division, Um, and I think it would polarise people all over the place which I think isn't helpful for democracy in the United Kingdom. I mean, it, I think a lot of people are quite anxious about that. So it is a possibility. Certainly it's more likely, but, you know, not mm. immediately.
4: OK, if uh, the Parliament uh, rejects uh, the deal next week, what do you think is going to be said in the comments? Uh, and what do you think will be uh, the response from Europe? Well,
5: we'll be in Strasbourg. We'll have a plenary session. So I think there will be a response. We'll have to see what what actually the vote is and, you know, mm. look at it against the background of the debate, um, because there is nothing further for us to offer. I think what we need to listen to is what will the United Kingdom, what will the British Prime Minister say if and when the vote goes down? Um, and none of us can speculate on that. Maybe. Oh well,
4: I, I think I, I, I think you can speculate to some degree. It, it wouldn't be the biggest surprise in the world if she resigned her position on foot of a vote like that, would it?
5: Well, I wouldn't be so certain, Michael, because each. I mean, I think she actually is a person.
4: No, I'm not saying it with any certainty, but i certainly think yeah. it's a possibility.
5: Yeah. I, well, if if it was quite significant, you know, the loss, yes. I think, yeah, because you would be so damaged. Mm. But remember, she also has a responsibility uh, not to destabilise the country and the economy. Mm. And that, going into Christmas, could be very destabilising. There might be some cheering for it. But what do you do without a leader Mm. that has to all be put in place? I'm sure it can be. Well, I guess that's my question
4: to you. What do you think Europe will do without a a leader in place in uh, the United Kingdom?
5: Well, the negotiations are concluded. I suppose our concern is, can the United Kingdom um, agree amongst itself as to what it wants to do before the end of March? Mm. And the problem for us in the Parliament is we've taken a view that we should wait until the United Kingdom ratifies uh, this, uh, supports this uh, deal before we um, follow uh, suit. So there are problems, um, timing, there's political problems. But, I mean, from a European perspective, in a sense, we're... We're so engaged in this, but we have no control over what the House of Commons will do that at the moment we just have to watch Mm. and hope without really knowing.
4: Okay, and given that it it, it will be known, the outcome of this vote will be known middle of December, uh, I take it that there is the prospect of this second vote that you spoke about and that that may have to hold off until the new year?
5: Which again poses some problems, which you kind of agree with you because of timing, it's hard to see how it could happen again. Some people speculate that if the markets react badly next week, Mm. that perhaps people will say, oh my God, this is worse than we thought. Let's go back in and and take a second look and vote uh, before Christmas. Um, I'm not so sure. I think there would be quite a frenzy. But look, lots of things have happened that many of us did not predict. Um, So I don't think we can be at all clear we just have to be prepared. I mean, I was in Donegal last mm-hmm. Friday week with the son um Simon Coveney talking to businesses, and you know, it was it was really interesting to hear what they're worried about because if there's no deal, like the fishing sector needs to know, mm. how are they going to um, cope with that? So I think it, it doesn't help us in Ireland. It doesn't yeah. help any members.
4: Well, I think we have to get to, get to the end of the us. day, apart from anything else, because this legal advice is to be published today and I understand yeah, that there's very, hard, I think, I think. very yeah. hard language yeah. in that advice regarding the backstop and that may influence yeah. uh, thinking in the United Kingdom uh, and uh, God knows what will happen before the day is through and uh, of I course know, uh, Parliament is back in session again.
5: Yeah, but I think is that if members of the House of Commons didn't understand what the backstop is and why it was necessary, I'm not sure that reading reading rather a big legal opinion uh, will make that any clearer because it seems to me to be absolutely clear why we had to have it why Europe demanded it and why the British Prime Minister accepted it. Um, so I, sometimes information doesn't help people improve their decision-making, it just clouds it and I hope that doesn't happen this morning.
4: All right, we'll leave it there. Thanks very much indeed, as always. Marie McGuinness, Fine Gael, MEP and Vice President of the European Parliament.
5: Michael, Michael
1: Reed, Reed
4: on, on LMFM. LMFM. Homeless hostel accommodation may be made available uh, to addicts under uh, the influence of drink or drugs uh, when uh, they look to stay overnight. Uh, this follows a motion by Sinn Fein councillor in Louth, Joanna Byrne, who joins us now. And a uh, very good morning to you and thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, I take it uh, this uh, is indicative of uh, the scale of the addiction problems in Drogheda at the moment
1: good morning michael yeah i I do believe um that we have an evolving problem of of rough sleepers in in this town and i I've been on your show discussing this before, but I feel that the main contributing factor to that is that we actually don't have any provisions in place in the county um to assist these people we We've phenomenal work going on with um the Homeless Aid and the Red Door Project Mm. and various different organisations. But at the end of the day, um, these facilities, the Homeless Aid in particular, it's a dry facility and there's rules and regulations. And unfortunately, Mm. some of these people aren't in a position to adhere to these rules and regulations. In
4: other words, Uh, if you turn up stoned or drunk, you're not going to be allowed in.
1: Yeah, unfortunately, yeah. that that's the fact of the situation, which is which is very sad. And um, there is the homeless officer will provide emergency accommodation. For these people, should they present then to to the local authority as, as still sleeping on the streets?
4: But uh, and there's, there's but good reason for that, obviously, Joanne, as oh, well, course. because Absolutely. people who don't have addiction problems and find themselves homeless don't like going into hostels for exactly that reason. They encounter violence because people are intoxicated or uh, they're sitting beside drug users or whatever the case may be.
1: I I don't dispute that fact Mm. at all but the fact of the matter is we can't just turn these people away and put them back out onto the streets and they're facing a harder time um, accessing emergency accommodation than to take them off the streets because there's a perception, that perception is out there that these people... God forbid, may cause trouble, or they may be a danger to somebody, and that stigma is following them around, and they can't, they mm. can't even find emergency. Well,
4: whether it's a perception or, or a reality, we know that other people don't go into these hostels, and people who don't have those problems are on the streets as a, a result. At least that's yeah. the experience yeah, that we hear about quite often of in Dublin places. But you're you're talking about uh, the two working in tandem that there would be Absolutely. wet facilities and dry facilities at the same yeah, time.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, at present, we only have the dry facilities so to speak, which is why I've tabled this motion looking for alternative solutions. And and then there's something that caters for... Those who, who don't have any of these issues and are just facing homelessness down to rising mm. rents, um, lack of affordable and social housing, all the other contributor factors that are pushing these people into homelessness. But there is, an, there is a cohort of people that have got issues and, and we, need, we need to be broad minded enough to realise that that's out there.
4: What and about the service providers though? Are, are you putting them at risk in, in allowing people in if they're intoxicated?
1: I, I don't personally know. I haven't actually ever been in a in, in, in a homeless situation. But I would imagine there is an element of risk. But we've got we've trained people. Um I, I would imagine mm. once this comes into fruition it'll have to go out to tender to the relevant NGOs. There is um hostels like this in operation nationwide, Peter mm. McFerry Simon Community, they've all got fabulous people, trained people who specialise. And are are, are
4: not just willing but happy to provide those services. Yeah,
1: Mm. and and are trained. Mm. And and that's the key, that that they are the professional people in the right sector to deal specifically with these issues. And this is the help that's needed to, to get these people off the streets. And then they can start tackling there are other issues as as they go forward but a roof over their head i think has to be the first step in that direction
4: okay we'll leave it there joanna for the moment thank you as always though that's Sinn Feng councillor joanna byrne now it's wednesday morning meaning the local newspapers are in your shops and marie Kearns joins us to tell us what's on the front pages this week marie
6: yes lots happening locally as always michael and we'll start with the argus this morning in Dog. And terrifying burglary attempts at the home of an ill child is the lead story of today's Argus. And it really is a worrying story. Listeners will have heard in this show about the fundraising appeal that has been ongoing to raise money for life-changing surgery in the US for two, two, two-year-old Zoe Murphy. Well, it's Zoe's home that has been targeted twice, Michael, in the past 10 days, leaving the family, as you can imagine, absolutely terrified and prompting her mom, Linda, to make it absolutely clear that they have absolutely no access to any of the money that has been raised uh, for Zoe and they do not keep any of the money in their home, so they don't have access to it and it's not in their home and um, so just to get that point across, I also want to mention also, Michael, the great picture on the front page of the Ark, it's 101 year old and Donnie, who's pictured with her four-month-old great-grandniece, who were the oldest and youngest attendees at the Sunday Christmas market in Cooley.
4: Okay, obviously uh, fit and well woman. Uh, I think uh, that must have been a a typo. You read that wrong. I think you said 101-year-old, 101 years young and (laughs) Donnie. Great to see that uh, as well. Let's uh, go to the Democrat. Uh, They lead with money issues, uh, but uh, the money uh, that will be spent in the county over the course of the next 12 months.
6: That's right, it's focusing on that uh, budget meeting that went on for hours on Sunday night to get it over the line and it really is quoting various councillors who are expressing various frustrations at the current state of play within the council Inside the Democrat on page 12 A story I suppose appropriate to the time of year, uh, St. Patrick's Parish Soup Kitchen in Dundalk is appealing to people across Loud to donate food items to help out locals in need this Christmas. And any non-perishable food items can be dropped into the parish office on Monday to Friday from 9.30am to 15 to 5.15pm if anybody can donate, Michael.
4: Okay, to the Dunlop dock leader, that's also uh, leading uh, with uh, the budget, but it, it has uh, other issues to deal with it as well.
6: Yes, uh, a sporting story of interest about a local athlete a Kate O'Connor, who is heading stateside next August, having received a scholarship from the University of Texas. The talented 17-year-old who is a member of St. Gerrard's Athletic Club and is in her leaving search year in St. Vincent's Secondary School has enjoyed a stellar year on the track finishing 8th in the Commonwealth Games. So best of luck to her, Michael. I'm always in awe of these uh, students who can do the leave insert and still have time for their sport—they're fantastic, aren't they?
4: Hmm. Okay, to the independent, the Drogheda Independent, that is, uh, and uh, the budget uh, again uh, taking up for the lead story yes. here, but they're zoning in on one particular element.
6: That's right. Uh, that's the that there'll be no more free parking in Drogheda following that meeting on Sunday night. That there's going to be a one euro per day charge on the all-day car parks, on the Dinor Road and in Mel. But there's another story on the front page, Michael, that I really think everybody should read. It it features a grieving dad's plea to those in despair. Oliver Doonan, whose son Anthony died by suicide, is imploring people who may be struggling to talk to so sad before it's too late. And in, in the article, which spreads on inside into the paper, he opens up About his son, and about how he as a dad coped in the aftermath of his son's death, and it really is a very poignant story, and it sends out a powerful message. And as I said, it's well worth the read.
4: Okay, to County Meath, the Chronicle, uh, leading with politics.
6: Yes, and it's all about one man, Deputy Paddy Tobin, who's on the front page of today's Chronicle with the catchy headline. let's get this party started. And of course, it's referring to the launch of the former Sinn Féin TD's new political party in Navin on Monday night. The paper's reporting that there was a phenomenal turnout of over 300 people from across me at the meeting and that the turnout had obviously taken both the organis- organisers and the hotel staff by surprise as because they kept, had to keep carrying in seats as more and more people arrived. And there's a great picture of Padder himself grabbing a selfie with the audience Looking very happy indeed. There's lots on the inside pages about that meeting and the launch of the new political movement, including some very interesting analysis from the paper's political columnist, Gavin Riley.
4: All right, well that's uh, the local papers this week. They're all in your shops and if you'd like to comment on the stories uh, that you heard about there from Marie or if uh, there's a, another uh, story that you've been hearing about uh, this morning or indeed if there's a, an issue that you'd like to raise with us, Marie will be back with us in a, a few moments time with any of the comments that come to us this morning and you're welcome to make comment on 1850
5: Michael Reed on
4: LMFM. Uh, the Alcohol Beverage Federation of Ireland is warning uh, that in a no-deal Brexit scenario, you could see an almost immediate increase in uh, the price of alcohol as a result of tariffs, regulatory and customs checks, and upfront VAT payments at uh, the border. We're joined by uh, Patricia Callan, who's uh, the director of ABFI. And good morning. To you, and thanks uh, for joining us here on uh, the program uh, this morning. Uh, this is all but uh, inevitable in such a scenario, is it?
7: Well, nobody has really planned for no deal. The government took a policy decision to stop planning uh, for any divergence, particularly on the island of Ireland, um, and that was uh, at a political level in order to uh, secure the backstop. So there is no preparation for no deal um, on the island generally. So um, that's why we're very, as an organization, really calling for the withdrawal agreement. To to be accepted because that does give us a degree of certainty in which to work out all the other finer details uh, during the transition period. But there is no industry and, and certainly no country that is ready for no deal. Uh, and therefore, you'd have to see a lot. You'd, it would send shockwaves right around the system if that was to, to be the case. And, and there was just to crash out of the EU.
4: Well, when uh, you're we, talking about something of such value, undoubtedly, it, it, it would cause shockwaves. Uh, you're putting uh, the value, or at least the CSO is putting the value of uh, drinks products between the UK and Ireland at 364 million euros.
7: Yeah, we export about 1.6 billion in total, 1.2 billion from the republic and the remainder from the north. But there is uh, also a very good uh, degree of of imports, exports between both countries and indeed on the island. 120 million worth of product is the aggregate value of north-south trade alone. Uh, So it's very important, therefore, that in the context of of any deal, that that is protected. Um, And certainly we uh, have had a number of priority issues that we have worked on and that we have secured in that withdrawal agreement. For example, in the context of our geographic indicators that protect Irish whiskey, Irish cream and poutine as products that can only be produced on the island of Ireland and can be uh, sold around the the world and protected as such, the UK has agreed now to implement a, a system in parallel to make sure that they honour their commitments because we're an all-island uh, trade body and all-island organisation and those geographic indicators have a right to be used by our members in the north and in the south, so both jurisdictions will be responsible for them. So it's important that we get that security, that's in the withdrawal agreement. And there are certainly other issues that do need to be resolved, such as whether you can put product of Ireland um, uh, or product of the UK Northern Ireland mm. on, on Irish whiskey. Obviously our preference, the members' preference, would be product of Ireland, so that there's no confusion globally that Irish whiskey is made in Ireland.
4: Okay, but uh, the likelihood is uh, that uh, the deal will be rejected by the House of Commons uh, next week. Now, uh, I, I suppose uh, what that means uh, remains uh, in question, uh, but uh, it's a uh, Changed a little bit in the last uh, 24 hours with uh, the three defeats for the government there and in particular following on uh, from uh, the Dominic Grieve uh, amendment which some are suggesting could lead to a second referendum. What's your read in all of this?
7: Well, certainly no one here um, would like, wants Brexit uh, but it was a vote the British people and obviously it's up for them to decide. I think all that we can do here is to, to plan as best we can and most businesses are, are quite advanced in terms of their plans in order to, they've looked at their supply chains, they've looked uh, at at stockpiling, for example. Glass bottles is something that we import from the UK. 130 million glass bottles come in here. Uh, And they're essential in terms of the food safety. You need quality glass. It's not easy to get an alternative uh, supply chain. So companies have stockpiled to ensure that there won't be any disruption uh, in the in uh, the event, again, that that things don't uh, go, go awry. Mm. Um, but I think, you know, in, in an ideal world, it won't happen. But on the basis of what's there right now, this withdrawal agreement is the best that, that is available. And certainly it gives us guarantees and scope to work uh, and to progress. Um, what we don't want to see is customs checks. Uh, we don't want any regulatory divergence because then that hits business, uh, not just in terms of delays. We have 23,000 truck movements across the border each year, and, and each hour-long delay will cost you €100. Euros. But more importantly, if you're in different jurisdictions and you don't have common rules, that would mean that you'd have to pay VAT at the point of entry, massive mm-hmm. cash flow drain for businesses, But also excise, so there's an EU excise mechanism across the the 27 member states, which means that you can transport goods in excise suspension. So if we had to discharge that excise and pay it going in and out of the UK... Uh, then that again, that's massive destruction, not just in terms of paying that, the money, but also in terms of, of having to go to a customs agent to discharge that responsibility, where you could see 24, 48 hour delays in terms of borders uh, and border checks, just in terms of that administrative process alone. Um, mm. So there's a lot of, of, of downsides outside of, I guess, tariffs, which we talk about quite regularly. And obviously there's tariffs and things like cream, barley, malt, apples. On finished cider, uh, 85% of our cider products here are exported to the UK. So if there was a tariff on apples coming down from the north and then a tariff on the finished product going back into the UK, that would massively uh, impact the business's ability to get on. And obviously our members are working really hard to uh, ensure that their cost base won't be spiralling so that consumers will not be affected. But they will have to make business decisions and change uh, processes on that basis to try and keep those price points.
4: But have you any sense or... Uh, any uh, willingness to predict how this uh, will pan out. Uh, do, do you think that we're looking into a, a no-deal scenario? Uh, the prospect, uh, the most likely prospect, is uh, that the deal is going to be rejected next week by the House of Commons.
7: It is, and like, I mean, uh, like there's so many experts out there throwing their tokens worth mm. in. Um, I think really, uh, like my, my concern in a really practical sense to do what's within our control, obviously that's now in in, in the court of the uk and even that, that is
4: very limited in that i mean if yeah. you're talking about stockpiling i mean that's a, a finite thing isn't it
7: it is indeed yes indeed yeah and i do uh, think that the government should now move away from this position of just refusing to to even try and plan and map for border or customs movements they did so in a political way but like i mean if you end up with no deal then how are you going to carry out those inspections and um, so i know the ports have been gearing up But we certainly have been not gearing up within the island of Ireland. So at the very least to start looking at at, uh, work in terms of what might be required, because all of that stopped when uh, the policy position of the government changed to say, well, look, we're just not even dealing with that because it's not going to happen. So I think uh, as businesses, we would again like to see a bit more planning, a bit Mm -hmm. more talk going into that. Um, And and the revenue have said that that is government policy, that they're not allowed to do that. So it's not they haven't thought about it. They've decided not to do this. Um, and indeed, I think we all need uh, a lot more time. For example, the UK government we're engaging with uh, again directly because of our members in the north, but we're only starting to look at them, how they're going to develop their excise system to be compatible with the EU one. And that work only starts six weeks ago. So we definitely need this transition period uh, of at least two years, if not more, to really get through the nitty gritty in every sector. These are just uh, examples mm. of things that affect one sector. In every second, you've got all these different things that people need to work through. Uh, and I think that, that the high politics bit is well and good, but actually, that is going to be gritty stuff that could, could really uh, throw us off and, and, and throw our economies off yeah. balance.
4: Well, the Bank of England is saying that food prices could increase by ten percent. Uh, what's your estimate in uh, the increase in uh, the cost of alcohol here in the Republic in uh, this No Deal scenario?
7: Well, pricing is always a matter for individual member companies. So uh, I think certainly the companies who have been properly continuously planning are are confident that they have done sufficiently, that there won't be any big disturbances. But again, that's all within the context of what they call the central case scenario, which is what government are planning for with that transition period. So I think no deal throws everything out and no one has any idea about uh, uh, what, what might get through. Again, bigger companies tend to be better prepared. Uh, but but, um, most of our members in the spirit sector for example their exports are are, are going to 140 different markets so they do have a level of skill in terms of things like exchange rate, logistics uh, dealing with different regulatory regimes so I think we are uh, possibly better prepared in that sense than than the broader food sector which uh, is more heavily dependent on the UK as its market but as I say uh, in terms of cider 85% of exports do go there and 71% of beer so uh, those would be the, the categories that we we'd be watching out for.
4: Mm, And that's the direct impact on uh, the industry uh, in terms of uh, trade, uh, disrupted trade uh, reduced trade reduced profit, undoubtedly a reduction in the amount of jobs as a result but then there's the knock on uh, effect on other industries, uh, the transport industry uh, and so on, Uh, the cost then to alcohol, what that might do uh, to those who are selling it in this country and uh, it's a never ending circle in a lot of degrees I take it.
7: Yeah, no, uh, everything is co-joined and I think what's been interesting for businesses as they plan through this is is uh, when we started out I guess people who weren't exporting thought they weren't weren't going to be exposed. Um but the, but everyone is part of somebody's supply chain and mm. what happens to those businesses further up that supply chain will have a knock-on effect and that's why if people haven't started to plan, they should certainly start uh, uh, and and there are plenty of supports between Borbia, Bia and Trade Ireland, Enterprise Ireland. Um, and indeed uh, a lot of really good uh, practical guidelines and steps how you can self-assess and, and, and begin to plan are available. Um, indeed, the, the government's financial support schemes uh, are also very generous but for some reason uh, historically the European Investment Bank has, has viewed the spirit sector uh, on a dark blacklist so we've been excluded but we've been working with the government to try and get that resolved and my understanding is that the scheme they announced, the, the future growth loan scheme that they announced in last year's budget that that in the coming weeks will be now made available to salaries as well which would be most welcome because finance is always an issue and cash flow is always an issue for all businesses
4: all right we'll leave there for the moment and thanks indeed patricia callan director of uh, the alcohol beverage federation of ireland
5: michael Michael reed on on lmfm
4: now let's find out what you've been saying to us marie Kearns joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have come to us this morning and welcome back marie
6: Thank you, Michael. And before I get to the comments in relation to the topics we've been discussing this morning, just to say, Michael, I had a phone call from a resident in Moneymore Housing Estate in Drogheda just to say that on one of the streets uh, in the estate for the last two or three nights, the public lights have been out and it's causing huge concern because, as you can imagine, people are already afraid in the estate and to have public lights out is uh, an additional worry for people. So Mm -hmm. just to say that I have been in touch with the ESB who have just got back to me to say that they don't look after the public lighting anymore and that it would be Loud County Council or SSE Utility Solutions. So I will try and get on to them to see if anything can be done. Okay. For those who are listening in. And then moving to Brexit and your your discussion there with the McGuinness MEP, Seamus from Dundalk phoned in and Seamus says that it's worrying for him listening to Mairead McGuinness because normally, Michael, is thinks that she's usually very upbeat and she looks at things
5: mm.
6: with, I suppose, the glass half full rather than the glass half empty with optimism. But you can tell from the interview that she seems to be worried and that worries him, if you, if you know mm. what he means. Mm. Because as Mairead herself says, nobody can predict what is going to happen next. Mm. And it really is a case of sitting and waiting. And Seamus has been in touch regularly in relation to this issue. And his fear was always going to be that it would be a no-deal, Michael. And this is the way he's Mm -hmm. still feeling.
4: Well, oddly enough, uh, I don't think I ever thought it was going to be a a, a no-deal scenario and I really don't think that way today. And um, all the more so than would have been uh, the case yesterday because there's all the more reason for thinking that it won't be a a no-deal scenario because of uh, the most significant vote that took place in uh, the Commons yesterday, which means that the MPs will have uh, a a say on what happens next when they reject the deal that is on offer to them and that may lead to uh, another referendum It may lead to them just staying in uh, the European Union uh, but it's most likely that they won't choose to leave without a, a deal. Uh, I think probably what's happening with politicians here is uh, that they're being very, very guarded in what they say uh, and they don't want uh, to be seen, to be opinionating on uh, affairs in another jurisdiction as people uh, might say, well look, mind your own business and don't be telling us what Mm. to do because Mm. if uh, a politician says, I think this will happen, people will take it to say that's what should happen Uh, and a little bit like uh, the way we send our budgets uh, to the German Bundestag, people get very upset about it and say, what's it got to do with them? Uh, And that might be the uh, response to something that is said here by a politician. And you'd be surprised how quickly things can be picked up on.
6: Well, Tommy is hoping that there will be a second referendum and that the British people will see sense this time around. He thinks it's not in the interest of anybody for uh, the UK to leave the EU. Okay. That's what
4: he's hoping for. OK, well, we're going to have a, another referendum. I, I think it might actually be the third referendum on divorce, is it? Uh, but we're going to have a, another referendum uh, next uh, May uh, in line with uh, the local and European elections on divorce. Kieran Deneen public affairs correspondent with uh, The Irish Sun, joins us now. Good morning to you, Kieran, and thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, what will we be voting on or what might we be voting on?
5: Uh, Morning,
0: Michael. Yeah, well, there's two uh, options really on the table at the moment. Um, we could be, uh, get to vote on reducing the time limits uh, for, for, that people have to uh, be separated before they can get the divorce from uh, four years down to two years. Or, uh, which is possibly more likely, um, we'll be asked to get rid of uh, all the uh, time limits in relation to divorce from the referendum and to let the uh, legislators decide how long you have to be separated. So those are the two, I guess, options the government are considering. Uh, the, they're going to speak to the leaders of the other political parties and they're hoping to have come to some kind of consensus and um, and and that it, by May the next year, along with local elections, this uh, question will be put to the people.
4: All right, uh, because uh, at the moment you uh, apply for a divorce and it's only possible to apply for a, a divorce if you've been separated for four out of the last five years, isn't it, Kieran?
0: A- exactly, and uh, Deputy Josephine mm. Madigan, or not, now a minister of her, she, mm. she's been pushing this uh, when she was on the back benches and she wants she wanted to reduce that to, to allow people to be divorced if they're separated for two out of three years uh, and more in line uh, with, with a number of other European countries. Uh, but when this question was raised, uh, it then led to the question of, you know, should, they, should it be in a referendum at all, uh, saying how long people should be tempered or should that be uh, a matter up to the uh, elected politicians?
4: Mm. Uh, but it, it looks like it, it will be put to a vote, and so we may be voting uh, to take a- away that requirement altogether.
0: Exactly, yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, uh, over t- 20 years after the last uh, vote on uh, uh, divorce uh, we're going to be uh, get it asked be asked again uh, and it's worth noting that uh, some of those the the measures in relation to the time periods were put in uh, due to the debate at the time of the last um, referendum and which only passed by a narrow uh, majority so uh, you know i guess there were people who uh, were uh, opposed to it at the time who might be a little bit upset uh, that uh, that now the government appears
4: to be won back on, on those commitments. Okay, so there's uh, three possible papers facing people when they go out to vote uh, next May. The European elections, the local elections and this referendum on divorce and there's also speculation that there could be other uh, ballots to cast a, a vote on some other referendum one on uh, allowing Irish people outside of this country to vote in presidential elections and also that ongoing question about the role of women in the constitution.
0: Well, exactly. A government spokesperson uh, did confirm last night that uh, that question of uh, allowing uh, Irish people abroad to vote in the presidential election uh, is being considered and could well be put to the people as well in uh, May 2019. Uh, there was no word, uh, of course, of, of the uh, other referendum, but, uh, you know, the government is committed to, to doing that as well, to taking out the, the wording, I guess, the anti uh, women are anti-female uh, wording as is, is, is portrayed from the uh, constitution too. So okay. uh, they made committed to both of those.
4: Which has become a, a very interesting and surprising uh, discussion in itself in that groups like the National Women's Council are, are opposing a, a complete deletion of uh, the phrase and want it to be uh, replaced uh, rather than deleted. Uh, but undoubtedly we'll be hearing uh, those arguments in uh, the coming months uh, should we get to vote uh, on whatever is proposed in May. But uh, we'll certainly be having uh, something to do in May in terms of the ballot box we leave it there for the moment though Kieran. and thank you indeed for joining us Kieran Deneen is a public affairs correspondent with the Irish Sun now let's go back to you and more of the calls that you have there Marie
6: yes Michael some more on Brexit Declan from Navin phoned in and says Marie McGuinness hit the nail on the head we are all sick of the uncertainty this is just going on and on and on and mm-hmm. on as the MEP says I feel that the British need to make up their minds on this and either go or stay. We need to get on with our lives, whatever happens, mm. says Declan. Yeah, well, We're hanging around. if you
4: love Brexit like I love Brexit, <laughs> it really is a tedious thing, but it's so important. I suppose some of the more important things in life are tedious, and this certainly is tedious. It certainly is important and it certainly is set to continue. For weeks, if not months, if not longer.
6: Yes, and that's a point raised by Derek, who was also in touch. He says he's not at all hopeful that this agreement is going to be passed. And he says the time is running out. And he wonders, uh, Moraine McGinnis referred to the European elections next year. How will that uh, affect mm. all of this? Yeah. Because you could have completely different mm. politicians re-elected. No one knows what's going to happen there.
4: Well, it's not just that. Uh, but, uh, of course, uh, I can't, don't remember offhand how many MEPs. Britain has uh, but and they leave the European Union suppose they won't have any and that's why we're meant to get two additional here Uh, but uh, that'll uh, throw uh, another spanner in the works
6: yes I know Mm. because if they're not gone before the European we still have the extra ones Mm. yeah so there's lots to think about there
4: Mm
6: -hmm. Uh, Mairead from Drogheda she's prepared to predict what will happen next Michael (laughs) unlike Mairead McGinnis she Mm. thinks that Theresa May will either resign or be pushed and that it will go back to the people
4: Yeah, well, it's uh, certainly uh, or almost certain uh, that uh, the withdrawal, the Brexit uh, divorce agreement is going to be rejected by the House of Commons uh, next week. Uh, There's quite a lot of speculation that that will be the end of uh, Theresa May as prime minister. Where it goes from there, well, some in the United Kingdom think that they have the chance to renegotiate it with Europe. The 27 countries are saying no. uh, So that might mean it might go to another referendum. Them.
6: Liz phoned in in relation to your interview with Councillor Joanna Byrne mm. and feels that there is a definite need for additional homeless services to be provided in Drogheda for those who have addictions. She says that you have to have sympathy for people with addictions and there is nowhere for them to go and feels that everybody is entitled to a safe place to sleep and thinks it will be for the benefit of everybody, if they wear off the streets at night time. Okay. Another listener, Bernie phoned in. Uh, she says she's a strong view on the huge problem we have in Ireland with addiction to alcohol and drugs, either prescribed or unprescribed, and says it's the root of most of our mental health problems. We don't have the services in Ireland. We have a tsunami of mental health addiction in Ireland and it's affecting every parish and family in this country and it needs to be addressed immediately. Mm. She says she comes across this every day in her workplace.
4: Okay, well that's a, an interesting uh, way of looking at it. I'm not sure I get the connection between addiction problems and mental health problems but uh, okay.
6: Finally, I'll go to John who phoned in in relation to the discussion we've been having the last couple of days over the cost of the Rose Garden in Drogheda. And John says that he's a keen gardener mm. and he does... Uh, he thinks that the Rose Garden is beautiful Mm. but cannot see how it could cost that amount of money Mm. Exactly. And just Mm. wanted to concur with what was said. Mm.
4: Yeah well absolutely I mean that's the thing, it really is beautiful Uh, uh, and let's not ever say otherwise (laughs) and nobody ever think that we've ever questioned uh, the value of it Uh, it really is lovely but 19,000 euros
6: well, John, as he mm. says, is it a mm. gardener, so mm. he knows about costs.
4: Good man, John. Thanks uh, for that. Uh, maybe uh, John would like to get back to us and uh, give us an estimate of uh, <laughs> what uh, he put it in for. Uh, but I have a feeling he'd say less than 19,000. Thanks, John. Thanks, Marie. Thanks to everybody who's been in touch with us. If you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is
5: 1850
4: 715 958. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. FM. A group of 500 nurses have signed a petition uh, to the minister for health on uh, the abortion legislation asking the minister to support the amendments uh, tabled on freedom of conscience and we're joined by mary fitzgibbon who's uh, a member of uh, the group nurses and midwives for life ireland good morning mary and thanks for joining us what's the problem here
2: What's the problem? Well, I suppose for us, really, um, there's a section in the bill, Section 243, and we feel that will seriously impact on our ability to practice in our professions because we don't want to participate in abortions. And just like the doctors, that um, part of the bill says that we have to... Uh, make arrangements for the transfer of care of the pregnant woman concerned mm. as may be necessary.
4: But you won't have to participate in the abortion uh, that you'll transfer uh, that care over to another practitioner
2: Yes, but for us, you know, for us that's morally objectionable because then we are, in in a way cooperating in that process If I come on duty and there are six women in a ward and I'm assigned these patients and the woman in bed one is down for a T.O.P. termination of pregnancy, Uh, And then I have to say to my colleague, well, I'm invoking freedom of conscience and you're going to have to look after my patient. You know, that is not going to bode well. And that is not something we want to do because you must, you know, in, in the definition of termination of pregnancy, it's a medical procedure intended to end the life of the fetus. So by me transferring care, I know that I'm making arrangements so that woman will have a procedure that will end the life of her baby. So for us, that is um, something we don't want to be involved in. And this isn't something that just nurses and midwives, this is Mm. senior management as well, do not want to be involved in making arrangements.
4: Because OK, but feel- you, you, but there is a freedom of conscience clause and you don't have to involve yourself in it. Uh, the woman remains entitled to, to what will be a general medical practice uh, and you're being asked to refer her to those who don't have a conscientious yes, but, objection but refer-
2: to... Referral is, whether you like or not, formal cooperation. I mean, we, a lot of us have studied medical and nursing and midwifery ethics and when you look about uh, at degrees of cooperation you know this this would be cooperating in the uh, arrangements so that is our objection we do not want to participate we you know we have not been consulted on this we have Well re- you have you have as we, a no, ci- uh,
4: no as a citizen you have
2: Yes but but it, the only thing that we got to vote on was the repeal of the 8th amendment
4: Well you did we, uh, and you were yes, also yes, told no, what the I heads of bill were
2: Yes, yes, I know that, but I was asked to vote yes or no. We didn't get to uh, vote on the legislation. So when the legislation then, uh, we got the heads of the bill, yes, but we have already been tabling amendments to say that the freedom of condom, and this isn't just us, you know, the GPs, we have had um, meetings with the union, Mm. uh, assistant directors of nursing, clinical midwifery managers, head of ultrasonography and large uh, maternity hospitals, have met with the union and they are inundated with calls it's the biggest issue they have ever had to deal with midwives and nurses yes they may have agreed many of them that women should have this uh, service but they didn't feel that they would be in a position to have to be involved with this mm. you know they and and now we know that from 9 weeks all of the surgical uh, the medical abortions and surgical will be in the uh, hospital setting so we're hearing an awful lot but, about the GPs, but we will be the ones that will be faced with it on the gynae wards, in theatres, and in We well, will, because terms. that's the will
4: of the people uh, to uh, make this uh, a service uh, available through uh, the medical system. It'll be a general medical practice. Now, as an individual, you're being given the option to opt out for your own moral reasons, a conscientious objection. But if the minister was to say it's OK for you not to refer people on to other practitioners, where does that argument start and end? For example, if a a gay couple were to come looking for reproductive advice uh, and they weren't uh, referred on to somebody else, uh, how would that be viewed?
2: Well, the thing is, really... Um, conscience is about a person's moral sense of right and wrong. Yes. You know, it's viewed as acting as a guide to your behaviour. And if you only the individual, I can't determine your
4: conscience, nor can you determine mine. No, but so we know, know that feel, we, we know I that people will not. P- people will object to dealing with same-sex couples. For moral reasons, people will uh, object to, to dealing with single but, women. But their for, right. to, to, it's, it's, no, it's not their right. right. It's no, not no, their right to deny a right somebody to medical we have not, a medical service. It's not right uh, to freedom of conscience. Not, uh, we, we don't have a right to deny somebody a medical service. Let's say somebody wants a, or needs a blood transfusion. Yes, it, a blood transfusion. How would you feel if a medical practitioner in this country denied somebody a blood transfusion but and, you're, and, you're and then the and then there, and then know, refused to refer them on? It's exactly the same argument.
2: No, no. listen, I mean, I worked in London as a midwife, and I did not participate in abortions. I did not get involved in them. But one day, unfortunately, I walked myself into a situation where there was a feticide for a woman at 28 weeks gestation. And I didn't know what a feticide was. And I said I would look after the woman. And when I found out what a feticide was, I said... Oh my God, I, I really was quite shocked. I never heard of, of a procedure where you inject potassium chloride into a baby's heart and uh, that uh, the baby then is obviously dead and the baby comes back down to be delivered. So my blood ran cold. I, I really didn't know what to do. And I said, uh, I, I just, I was just absolutely knocked for words. And I just said, uh, I can't do that. Mm. But under this bill, I would have, I have to go and find a colleague who will do this. And the difference is, there's no comparison between a podcast okay, well, well, and a medical. Well, ah,
4: now I don't know. I don't know. Tell that to a Jehovah Witness. Now, no, no, no. Would would you administer a chickenpox vaccine?
2: But but you know, at the end of the day, what I'm saying is that I. I have a duty of care to patients
4: yes, okay. would you administer if, a chicken pox vaccine oh, if, why if that va- I?
2: well if that, that creates a moral if, dilemma if it's that
4: possible. vaccine was developed from the tissue of a, an aborted fetus
2: there are certain things that will create moral dilemmas that will
4: does that um, not create a moral well, dilemma
2: well i i don't know whether the, the chicken you know if if i knew that the vaccine was from an aborted fetus then it might create sorry
4: <laughs> okay Right. Okay, I'm not sure. De- deal right. with what you're dealing with there. I, I, I don't want that to put you off. It is quite a, a heated right. yeah. and a, a very important conversation. Uh, yes, I think you You yeah, know, you yeah, have
2: yeah. to think about it. I mean, mm. I worked in a hospital where they did abortions up to birth mm. at 39 weeks or 37 weeks. Um, for cleflop and Talapez, it was extremely distressing. And this is not an issue that is just confined to Irish midwives and nurses. There's a Japanese study from 2013, mm. 255 nurses and midwives were interviewed about abortion care or abortion services, and they said they found it highly distressing. And they were very mm. conflicted between the right to life of the baby and the, the you know, they believe the woman should have these
4: right to the service. Mm -hmm. I I, I understand completely your sincerity in the arguments that you're making, Mary, but uh, do do you understand the arguments that I'm making that people have different morals uh, and uh, have objections on different grounds and some people will uh, object to IVF treatment some people will object to to sterilisation some people will uh, object uh, to administering vaccines or antibiotics or wherever the case may be. This is another moral conscientious objection. Uh, uh, And where do you start and stop? Do you allow people to say look, you know, medical services might be available by law but we don't provide them?
2: Well, you know, there is a thing that they're going to provide a 24-hour helpline now and it's going to be made available so that uh, people can ring the helpline and get the information they need. But to be forcing GPs or nurses and midwives to participate in something they don't want to participate is infringing on their right to freedom of conscience. We have at the moment in the Dáil the right in two parties, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, a free vote. They have a vote on this, a free vote. And we saw that uh, this you know, mature element to a party, the, the issue of freedom of conscience. And th- this is um, a- an issue, like e- even just take Italy, 70% of, of doctors don't participate in abortions. Mm. Uh, in some parts of Italy, I was reading there in Sicily, 87.6% of doctors don't get involved. And for us as nurses, when we come on, Uh, We shouldn't be put in a position in the morning when you come on duty saying, well, actually, I am invoking freedom of conscience, therefore I am not getting involved. Mm. That has to be worked out at senior management level to protect the rights of nurses and midwives who Uh, do not want and it has to be dealt with sensitively because you can't be going over to the woman in the bed and say well I'm actually a, a conscientious objector or I'm invoking freedom of conscience and I can't look after you because what you know you can't go into a big thing there that would be very distressing for both the staff and imagine coming on every day on the ward and worried I mean when I worked in London I would look on the list and I would see room one, termination of pregnancy, maybe room two, feticide, hmm. And the rest then might be inductions of labor, a twin pregnancy, whatever. So I'd be looking to see, oh, my goodness, um, I'm going to avoid that room or I'm going to go in here and I'm going to work here. Um, And because when you started in the area of freedom of conscience, you were on very shaky ground. And two Scottish midwives, they lost their case this past year in the Supreme Court. They no longer are working in midwifery. So uh, we have people in ultrasonography, the head of ultrasonography in a large teaching hospital, who is now being asked to do pre-abortion scans, who is uh, finding abnormalities, uh, as, as ordinarily she would do. And she is now conflicted because she does not want to be involved in ending the life of the baby. Mm. So, you know, we, you know the, the thing, we talked an awful lot about choice. We heard choice, choice, choice. So can people not respect? There will be those who will choose to participate and there will be those who will choose not to participate. And it is up then to the union and to the staff and the management to make arrangements to, to respect the rights of their workers. Otherwise, you're going to have people saying, you know, I can't deal with the stress of this. As I said, that research evidence from Japan, very recent evidence, is saying it created huge distress and it 's not just distress, you know uh, seeing a dismembered fetus is not is very, very distressing
4: and and and, and could you work in the same building uh, where terminations are uh, but they
2: will be in in surgical wards, they will be in mm-hmm. gynae wards, they will be in theaters, but let's
4: say you 're working in orthopedics or a, a different section of of course but yeah. you know,
2: that's what you will find people moving out of those areas and and uh, and I mean you know it 's interesting because. Once, uh, there was a midwifery sister who um, I, um, you know, there were a lot of issues with this midwifery sister. Mm. And um, I had a conversation with her because um, I was finding that I was getting a lot of harassment. It was nothing to do with uh, abortions now. But in the middle of the conversation, she started screaming at me. And she said, you know, the Irish midwives won't do the abortions. And I always have to do them. And I always am called up to the night floor to hold hold the ultrasound scanner so that they can inject the baby's heart with potassium chloride. And I said, I'm very sorry about that. I said, but this isn't why I'm talking to you. And this midwife went on to have a breakdown. I'm not saying that the two were related because she had issues that were evolving. But it was interesting that she made that. So it does create an awful lot of conflict and a lot of tension. And can I just say, Mm. it goes against our code of conduct, which says we respect and defend the dignity of every stage of human life.
4: Okay, but 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 just very finally, uh, to conclude, tell me why this moral objection is different to the other moral objections, whether that's blood transfusions or uh, vaccines or antibiotics or sterilization or IVF or whatever people might object. Well, to.
2: in this case, you have a live baby. I mean, what the procedure is intended. That is why... You know, they, there was a lot of debate about the definition of termination of pregnancy. All pregnancies...
4: Well, there's a, a a lot of it, debate a about whether it's a live baby or a fetus.
2: But sure, it's... Look, it's an embryo up to eight weeks, if we wanted to use the biological terms. Mm. From eight weeks onwards, then, it's a fetus. And a fetus just means offspring. Um, you know, but we always talk... I mean, when the woman comes into the ultrasound... And once a scandal, we talk about a baby. So at the end of the day, it's a living. I mean, the intention is to end the life of the fetus. If you read the RCOG guidelines in the UK, the intention is not to have a live baby. And I mean, it's appalling that the amendment was put down that if a baby survives an abortion, that there won't be resuscitation measures. But I can tell you, for us nurses and midwives, we will be calling the pediatricians and the, you know, the people to resuscitate the baby. And we will start resuscitation because we could not. I mean, it was bad enough when I was a midwife watching a 24-weeker that they decided not to resuscitate who was healthy and born. They took the decision before it was born to watch that baby die I wouldn't stand over a baby who was struggling for it is very, very distressing.
4: Mary, I have to leave it there, but thank you indeed for joining us. Thank you, thank thank you very much indeed. Mary Fitzgibbon, member of Nurses and Midwives for Life Ireland. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. Now, Sinn Féin says it will bring forward legislation once again which would introduce a cap on the amount of interest uh, that money lenders apply to loans. Uh, this follows uh, the news recently that Amigo Loans has been licensed by the Central Bank to provide loans here with an interest rate of 49.9%. Its spokesperson on finance has Pierce Doherty, who joins us now. And a very good morning to you and thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, what rate would you cap it at, by the way?
3: Well, what we've argued for is that the rate should be uh, no more than 3% per month, which would be a, a typical uh, maximum APR of 36%. Uh, Currently, money lenders, well, there's been a lot of focus in relation to Amigo, which is coming in uh, at uh, lending just uh, below 50%. But Amigo is working on a different type of uh, money lending where there needs to be kind of guarantees from family members. Most money lenders, as we would understand them, uh, and particularly dominant during this in the run-up to Christmas, uh, where they have over 300,000 customers, uh, those lenders charge rates of 187% uh, APR so that 's the average and that 's the a- interest rate mm. uh, that they charge on the loans at this point in time uh, and we want to drastically reduce that we want to set an upper limit uh, as I said of what would be equivalent of three percent per month which would be a thirty six percent aPR uh, and and make sure that no money lender can charge those um, abs uh, you know just immoral rates um, a- into the future
4: uh, and what about personal freedom I mean this was uh, the argument uh, thattsha was making when Mary Lou MacDonald raised this in the doll in recent weeks and people choose to take out these loans and you're taking that option away from them should you put a cap on because the loans may not be available.
3: Well, first of all, the the idea, you know, that's the, the, the that's the type of ideology that Leo Varadkar has: personal freedom, let the markets decide. So, no matter how 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 bad uh, an industry is screwing the customer, and these people are people who, uh, are in the most, are in poverty that have nowhere else to turn to and feel that they're uh, trapped into a cycle of, of of reliance on money lending. You know, the idea that a tisha would stand aside while you know ch- rates have been charged at that that no. level and say, well, let the market decide is is is, you know, in my view, is is disgraceful and despicable. We already uh, introduce uh, restrictions on on lending in the state. Indeed, the restriction and the only restriction we've placed so far in terms of the interest rates that any financial institution can charge is on credit unions. At the minute, a credit union cannot charge more than 1% per month or 12% APR. That's already in legislation. So Mm -hmm. where does it stand for, you know, people going and accessing money from credit unions? You know, there is restrictions there and they're there for a reason but when it comes to money lending, when it comes to people who are very vulnerable that are being preyed on by these money lenders uh, you know the government uh, believe that if whatever they want to charge they should be allowed to charge it. And well
4: what, is that what they're saying? Uh, I mean you could look at it that way, you could also say that the government is saying uh, that you're looking at uh, regulated market rate and if uh, you take uh, away the ability for people to charge rates of up to 180 7% APR, uh, as you mentioned a, a moment ago, you may take away those lenders and force people into the arms of unlicensed moneylenders.
3: No, if uh, you look at report after report, what it actually tells you is that many of the people who are availing of moneylending services actually also avail of other credit from different institutions, particularly the credit union. The the issue with moneylending... Well, the- you talk
4: about Amigo, just looking at their website now, and they say borrow up to 10000 Pounds within 24 hours with a guarantor, no credit scores necessary.
3: Yeah, and like, and that's... You know. In other
4: words, you won't get a loan from a credit union, but we'll give you 10,000.
3: Yeah, but that's not a good thing. Overnight. You know, that's not a good thing. That's, ne- you know, because what happens... It's in- not a
4: good thing, but is it not better than somebody going to an unlicensed money lender for the 10,000?
3: No, because the, the argument of that we need to allow these uh, these 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 uh, money lenders to charge absolutely astronomical, uh, unbelievable rates is that if we don't do it, then criminals will actually fill the gap. That's that's not that's not a, a, a proper counter argument. But whatsoever. is it not the reality? No, it's not the reality. What mm. we need to do is we need to ensure that there is access to credit for people who can access credit uh, through the credit unions, and that has already happened in, to a certain degree, uh, but it is only operational on half the credit unions around uh, the state. It needs to be widened out uh, and, 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 and made more available. We also need to remember the incentive here um, for, for uh, uh, the appeal to money lenders is the fact that they call to your door. They, they landed mm. at my house two weeks ago uh, with their glossy brochures, saying, you know, get this amount of credit in time for Christmas and these are the rates and they, they're straight up about it, that the rate mm. is 187 uh, APR but I'll tell you something, Michael, if you're a family and you're looking at, you know, the pressures of Christmas, you're looking at, you know, kids on, and, and trying to ensure that you know yeah, mm. you do your best for your family and all the rest, when the money lender comes to your door offering you an easy 500 euro uh, then it's something that you grab with both hands. Yeah, and, well and, I don't
4: know if I'd problem. be able to borrow 500 euro at that rate of interest uh, for Forty percent, 50% APR, never mind 170% APR. Uh, and if I did, I, I quite possibly would default, depending on the size of the loan. So what did they do then? Then, Well, they chase me or chase my guarantor as the case may be. Uh, and th- all of that is uh, expensive. And that's the argument they make, isn't it, for charging such a uh, high rate uh, of interest because to get the money back, it costs them a lot of money to chase it.
3: Well, actually, the, the interest rates that the money lenders charge at the minute and there's no cap whatsoever. So they could actually charge a thousand percent, and across the water you have payday loans that charge uh, rates of that. But in Ireland it's one hundred eighty-seven percent. But if you put collection fees. On top of that, it goes up to 287 percent, so actually the rate is a lot a, a lot higher, uh, higher than that. But many of the customers, and this is what at the point I'm saying, many of these people can actually avail of uh, loans from the credit union, and particularly through the social welfare supported loan scheme in the credit union. The problem is is that this is easy, this is accessible, and in most cases, there is a cycle of uh, lending in terms of credit unions. Like I, I brought six people who worked for one of the major money lender firms in the country to the central bank. They made a protected disclosure to me. They told me all the dirty little details that go on within the money lending industry. They told me how they trap customers uh, in a cycle of, of poverty where roll over loans, which is completely illegal, where there was falsification of documentation and all of the rest going on within the industry. I brought to the, the central bank. Now, in fairness, the central bank fined uh, the money lending company uh, not, not enough in my view, but it was a, a significant fine. The problem is all of those people lost their jobs every single them, every single one of them lost their jobs uh, because there was no protection there. But they told me, and when you get in under the hood the, and you find out what these lenders are doing, it's all about targets, it's all about sales, it's all about trying to trap people in. It's about having your brochure there for Christmas and, and trying to pressurise people. And once you get a family member uh, in your clutches, what happens is you get this cycle of dependency and you're continually rolling over and rolling mm-hmm. over the loan. And while 187 percent APR, mate, and you know it doesn't. It's not what rings loudest uh, to the person who just needs the money to fix the washing machine or pay for a a dental appointment or or, or you know or mm. to basically food on the table or, or, or oil in the tank. You know they're not concerned about that. But in terms of what we are as legislators, when we see what is happening and when we see an industry that is hugely profitable that is preying on the vulnerable, then what we need to do is regulate this. And what we're suggesting here is that we will set rates that are. Three times higher than the credit unions
4: Well, uh, well I mean, It's still ridiculously high at 36% APR uh, and I understand where you're, where you're coming from uh, as I'm sure most people do. I'm not sure which part of the whistleblower's story was worst uh, but uh, shocking on all fronts. Having said that, sometimes well-intentioned measures have adverse uh, effects and you tried to introduce this legislation if I'm not mistaken in 2012 and at the time Brian Hayes was uh, the junior minister for finance uh, and he was highlighting. A study in the UK, which had taken place a few years previously, where they concluded that a not-for-profit housing finance agency would need to be able to charge an interest rate of about 123% APR in order to be commercially viable.
3: Yeah, well, look, if, there, if if a money lending firm needs to charge 127, and and like, I, I don't agree with that. And just as an example, Amigo, as you mentioned in the yeah. introduction, is charging below that, and obviously they're viable. So it kind of uh, really rubbishes uh, that, that, that point. But just let's take that point. If this industry can only survive by absolutely fleecing customers to a level where you pay back more than 100% of what you borrowed, 127, as he's suggesting, then they shouldn't be allowed to operate. Why would we be allowing, why would we be licensing people like this, industries like this, that only have one target? They're not lending to people who uh, can, you know, easily afford to pay this back? They are lending to people who are uh, some of the most vulnerable and the poorest in Irish society, and that is not the type of approach that we need to have. We have a credit union model uh, which is available in every parish. We have a system that allows for uh, for 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 low interest loans for those on social welfare p- uh, payments. We have a, a, an easy mechanism to pay that back through uh, deductions of social welfare. It's not available in the rest of the country. What we need to do is we need to stand. Stamp out these high interest rates, and if they can't operate in that environment, then so be it. Okay. Um, but what we need to do is encourage people uh, and direct people, mm-hmm. and make credit more a- 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 available uh, through areas that aren't fleecing the customer, that are charging appropriate interest rates, and that are still uh, uh, profitable. But the last thing, okay. and the worst thing that could happen to a family, Michael, is that we would provide credit to them, you know, at a time when we know that they can't pay that back. Oh, because that just causes yeah. Yeah. more yeah. poverty, it causes more misery, it causes serious mental health issues, and I've mm. met too many families at the end of their tether because of financial uh, circumstances and when you get a moneylender knocking on your door Mm -hmm. with a glossy brochure for christmas look at what the kids could get Mm -hmm. uh, on christmas day you know it's very very difficult for a mother or father uh, not to not to okay that
4: listen i don't want to hold you unduly but just very briefly before we let you off the line Piers doherty would you say there's more of a a chance uh, this morning than this time yesterday of uh, a second brexit referendum in the uk
3: Look, I watched uh, quite a uh, bit of the House of Commons debate yesterday and it's it's very unclear. And, you know, we have a situation while the majority of the Parliament seems to be uh, opposed to the withdrawal agreement, which tries to make the best lot of of the mess that the the Brexiteers have created. What isn't clear is that uh, there is a majority against Brexit. Indeed, you know, we see from the Labour Party that they are for Brexit, that they want a different type of Brexit, whatever that means. We see the same kind of uh, mixed messages coming out from the Tory Party, but I haven't heard, uh, as of yet, any real momentum uh, from MPs looking for for a second referendum. So this is this is a very uh, you know a very very risky time for Ireland because um, we just don't know, and we're we're spectators now uh, after negotiating a, a, a withdrawal agreement that is uh, that does the best and tries to protect as best as we can the impacts of Brexit. It, it, it looks as if it could. Be be all up and smoking within the next seven days.
4: All right, we we'll leave it there. Thank you very much indeed for joining us this morning, Sinn Fein's spokesperson on finance, Pierce Hardy.
5: Michael, Michael Reed,
4: Reed on, on LMFM Now the increase in energy prices uh, recently are to be followed uh, by further increases with uh, another two companies uh, increasing uh, the rates uh, this month or, or in the next month or so. The Society of uh, St. Vincent de Paul is concerned about how this will push people into poverty and Caroline Faye, Head of Social Justice with Vincent de Paul joins us now. Uh, and those who are finding it difficult to uh, afford uh, their bills and pay their electricity and so on carolina are paying a premium you've uh, done a comparison of prices and discovered what you're calling poverty premiums on those who pay as they go
8: that's right michael and um, i suppose there's a few different things going on here and um, a lot of the time people who are on low incomes and who might struggle to get a, you know when they get a big electricity or a gas bill have opted to go on to a pay as you go meter um, which, you know, you can kind of top up and, and you don't run off a big bill. You kind of pay it as you, you know, as you use the electricity or the gas. And um, they're quite positive in terms of the fact that they do help people to budget and they get rid of the stress of having yeah. that big bill every couple of months. But what we found is (laughs) for a lot of people using them, they're actually going to be paying a lot more than somebody who, say, for example, can, you know, take advantage of the direct debit billing, the online billing and that kind of thing. Mm. So people might be paying uh, up to 270 euros extra per year. And unfortunately, it's people on the lowest incomes that are going to be facing that extra charge. So that's one of the things that we wanted to highlight today.
4: Or 30 percent more, as the case may be. That's right.
8: Yeah. Mm. So, I mean, that is a huge amount. And, you know, a lot of the time. You know the the energy suppliers will offer deals for going on direct debit or for taking the online billing, um, and a lot of the time I suppose we would suggest to people if you're struggling with your electricity bills and your gas bills, would you think of taking on a meter? But the uh, the problem with the meter is the extra cost associated with it. Now for people mm. who are you know in hardship, they can go to the energy suppliers and look for some of the costs to be reduced. But you know for the ordinary person who's using a pay-as-you-go meter to try and stop themselves from getting into trouble with the electricity and the gas bills. Mm are paying a premium it's
4: a sensible thing to do, i suppose for a, a lot of people rather than a, a bill coming in the door that you can't afford you pay as you go, but you're paying for the privilege.
8: that's exactly it and because the prices have gone up now in the last year as well and um, people are going to be facing more just generally you know anyone who's using electricity and gas are going to be paying a lot more about three hundred euros more and um, you know in comparison to to a twelve twelve months ago. Um, But if you're paying as you go, you'll really feel that. So if you get your €20 top up for your gas or your electricity meter, it's not going to go as far as it did last year. And what Mm. we're worried about as well is that people are just going to be kind of self-disconnecting. When that €20 runs out, they're just going to go without heating or electricity for a while.
4: That they'll be without heat or light.
8: Exactly, yeah. So, I mean, we'd worry about particularly about older people, maybe people with disabilities, and people with young children who are in that sort of situation and who might be struggling at this time of year anyway because it's so expensive. And then, you know... what we find is people tend to kind of cut back in the areas that they can, so if they can cut back on food is the big one, people usually try and reduce their spending on that, but people do try and cut back on the energy cost as well and um, that can have a huge impact on the I suppose their standard of living and just their comfort in their homes.
4: Right, Uh, during the slump we have heard uh, from people who spent the day in bed or in their bedroom, wrapped up in blankets and if they could provide any heat they do it in that room only and does that continue to be the case?
8: That is the case, yeah. Now, I think, you know, particularly during the very bad years, what we saw was a huge number of people being disconnected from the electricity and gas. And that was a big problem because, obviously, if you're disconnected, there was a reconnection fee and people had big arrears and things like that. So the meters have kind of helped in a way. There's been a lot less disconnection, you know, by the energy companies. But as I say, some people will not top up the meter because they haven't got the money and they're kind of self-disconnecting. We do find that people tend to spend, you know, particularly people who might be around the house a lot, so it would be people who are retired or with a disability, mm. or, you know, if you're looking after young kids, you live in the house an awful lot of the time, um, and people are trying to stick to one room. And, um, you know, and what, what we find as well now, and a big thing coming up for us, is people living in poor quality rented accommodation. And maybe the heating isn't working, or maybe the, you know, there could be even broken windows or damaged windows and doors. The place is very, very cold. They don't want to ring the landlord in case he decides to put up the rent. So people are trying to manage to live with maybe the plug-in um, electric mm. heaters and that, which are hugely expensive yeah, to hugely run as well.
4: Hugely yeah. My God, yeah. You watch the meter run around. Absolutely, uh, uh,
8: absolutely. And if you're topping it up yeah. as you go, you'll really find that you're flying through the top-ups then mm-hmm. with the meters as well, leaving that kind of heating. And of course the house probably isn't that comfortable and isn't that warm, you know.
4: Okay, well if people are in that position I'm sure there's help available for them through St. Vincent de Paul. Absolutely. We have Absolutely and, and that's,
8: that's definitely yeah. what we say to people. Do come to us if you're struggling with the cost of energy and another cost this Christmas. That's what we're here for.
4: Okay, Caroline, have to leave there. Thank you for joining us, Caroline Fahi, Head of Social Justice with the Society of St. Vincent de Paul and that brings our programme to its conclusion. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye.
2: The Michael
3: Reid Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie